1997, the famed filmmaker Woody Allen shocked the tabloid world, all the people that pay attention to what's going on in Hollywood, when he divorced his wife, Mia Farrow, to marry a 21-year-old named Soon Yi. That was shocking enough, but what was even more shocking was that Soon Yi was Mia Farrow's adopted daughter, which means that Woody Allen married his stepdaughter. That's, that's messed up, right? <laughs> now, a few years later, he was interviewed by Walter Isaacson, who's a famous biography. He wrote the Steve Jobs biography that was getting a bunch of buzz right after he passed away. Uh, Walter Isaacson interviewed Woody Allen for Time Magazine. And during the course of the interview, he was like, hey, so uh, what was up with that? Like you, like, you married your stepdaughter. What, you know, that, that's weird. And Allen's quote has since become famous. He was, he was drawing from the poet Emily Dickinson, but he said, in reference to why he thought it was okay to marry his stepdaughter, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. The heart wants what it wants. That's romantic. Except when Woody Allen uses it to justify marrying his stepdaughter. Right? Alan would have us believe that his love for his stepdaughter was so overwhelming that he couldn't help himself. It blew past all of his reason, all of the things that might have said, hey, this might not be like the best idea you ever had, right? And it blew past all sense of any kind of cultural norms, social, uh, you know, social right and wrong. It blew past all of that, and it just, he wanted to be with her so badly that he just had to. So he did. Now, Woody Allen's story reveals something important to us, and that is that this whole idea of following your heart uh, isn't always like the best choice you could make. It's not always wise. His story reveals to us that our hearts are actually kind of dumb. Okay? They don't think about practicality. They don't consider the long-term consequences of wanting something. Our hearts just want, regardless of whether it makes sense, right? There's no logic to our hearts. That's, that's kind of how they are. Right? Our hearts are complicated. I mean, again, you know how our culture likes to, to boil everything down to two overly simplified sides, right? So we do this here, too. There are people who say you should follow your heart, no matter what. Do what makes you happy. If it feels good, do it, Right? On the other side, and historically, this is where a lot of Christians have landed. On the other side, people have said, uh, our desires are untrustworthy. You shouldn't follow your heart because if something feels good, it's probably wrong. Right? And again, historically, we've found a lot, a lot of even Christians who say that. Well, today, I, wanna, I want, shockingly, I want to navigate some kind of a more helpful middle ground. Right? Today, I want to suggest to you, and what we'll see throughout the scriptures and everything that we're going to be talking about today, is that our desires are essentially human. They're essential to who we are as people. And because they're essentially hu human, that means two things. One, it means that our desires are good. God created them, God created us, and our desires are good. But it also means that our desires are stained by sin. And that puts us in a difficult place because uh, our desires are all complicated. They're twisted up within us. And sometimes, sometimes it's difficult to tell whether the thing that we want is going to be good or whether it's going to be bad. The good news for us today is that if we will commit to remain in the Spirit, if we will commit to open ourselves to the Spirit's transforming, renewing work in our lives, then we can learn to distinguish between our good and our bad desires. We can learn to distinguish when our desires are, 
orienting us towards life and when they're taking us down a path that you know, might result in you marrying your stepdaughter. Okay? So, that's, that's what we're going to look at today. And, and, and hopefully we'll all avoid that, right? Yeah, okay. That's easy sermon application today. Don't marry your stepdaughter. Um, we're, we're starting a series today that I'm very excited about. The series is called Whole. And what we're going to be asking in this series is what does a whole life look like? What does a fully human life look like? A life where you're really and truly flourishing, okay? And our guide to this question is Jesus, Okay, because uh, there was a moment in, uh, in Jesus' life when he was basically asked this question. It's in Mark 12. I want to I uh, show you. So Jesus is in the middle of arguing with a bunch of religious scholars. He says, one of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, that he knew his stuff. So he said, okay, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this was actually a, a very common question in Jesus' day. And the, the root of the question, what they were asking when they were asking this question was this. Uh, the Jewish people had a whole, like hundreds and hundreds of commandments. And they understood that the commandments were sort of the way that God uh, invited us into life. That if you follow the command, if you follow God's commands, you'll be the person and the people that God created you to be. So following the commandments is how we find life. That's what they understood. The problem is there's like, again, hundreds and hundreds of them. So often, people would say, hey, if you could like sum up all of the commandments in one, what would that one be? That's what they meant by what is the greatest commandment. And what they're really asking when they say that is, can we, can we just sort of put in a really easy kind of portable wrapper what it means to be the people that God created us to be? What does it mean to be fully human? What does it mean to be alive the way God created us to be alive? What does that mean? That's, that's what they want. When they asked this question, that's what they were asking. Okay? And here was Jesus' answer. Jesus replied, well, the most, com- the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Jesus says, you want to know what it means to live a fully human life? It's this. You love God and you love people. Okay? But really, also, and more helpfully for us today, it's really also like a five-fold commandment. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So for the next five weeks in this series, we're going to use each of these things that are part of Jesus' greatest commandment as a lens to do some serious self-examination, to really take a good, hard look inside of ourselves. Because here's the thing about sin. Sin never emerges fully bloomed, okay? You don't just wake up one day and decide you want to marry your stepdaughter, right? You don't just show up at work one day and think, you know what, I'm going to embezzle a bunch of money. Hmm. You don't suddenly see someone and decide in that moment that you're going to cheat. You don't just all of a sudden out of nowhere become a chronic liar or have an uncontrollable temper. These things don't happen out of nowhere. Sin always begins in us as a small seed. And so it's difficult, it's difficult to discern. It's difficult to see because it starts so small. But if we leave it to run unchecked, it begins to take root. It begins to grow. And when it blooms, it often becomes very difficult to deal with it. And sometimes it's too late. And so what this series is going to invite us to do is to use each of these components, heart, soul, mind, strength, and neighbor, as an opportunity to look inside of ourselves, to kind of look with a magnifying glass and comb through ourselves and find those seeds of sin and to pluck them out before they bloom before they take root, before it's too late. That's what this series is about. 
I'm very excited. I, uh, this, is actually, this sermon today is one of my favorites I think I've ever gotten to, to, to craft and deliver. So, let's talk about what it means to love God with all of our hearts, right? Now, when we hear all your heart, we think of like emotions, right? When you say, when you say I love you with all my heart. That means you, we think primarily of our emotions. But in Jesus' day, hearts were not where our emotions lived. This is weird, but in Jesus' day, they said that emotions lived in your bowels. I think it's very unromantic to say I love you with my whole large intestine, but that's what they did. That's what they did in Jesus' day. Okay, I don't, They didn't know biology like we do, so they didn't see how gross that was. When Jesus said, in fact, this, this, whole, this whole commandment that Jesus gives, the original commandment is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's actually called the Shema, and it's a prayer that every Jewish person prays every day. And so as you can imagine, there's a lot of commentary on this. And we know, we know what the rabbis of Jesus' day meant when they said hearts. We know how they understood what that meant in Deuteronomy, and we know how Jesus understood it when he said it. And it's very different from the way we think about hearts. Okay? Uh, there's a, there's a, we're going to talk, we're going to go like real nerdy with a lot of Hebrew stuff today, so I apologize in advance if you're not into that, but it's super fun for me, so indulge me. You'll probably think it's too cool too. So in English, we have singular and plural, right? We either have one thing or a bunch of them. Hebrew has singular and plural and double. It's this weird form that they use specifically when there's two of things. So it's, it's actually mostly used with body parts. Like we, it, they don't say we have plural hands. They have a form that indicates two hands, two eyes, two ears, things like that. Right? And it's usually there's like an extra letter tacked on so that you know it's doubled. Well, in Deuteronomy 6, in the Shema, when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, it has that weird letter on it that implies doubling. So what it's actually saying in Deuteronomy 6 is, love the Lord your God with all of both of your hearts. Which is weird, right? We know cows have four stomachs, but we didn't think we had two hearts. And again, biology, we're pretty sure that's just not physically true. Yeah, and the rabbis knew this. They weren't, they weren't dumb. They, they knew that we only have one physical heart. Okay? So they interpreted this to mean when God says, love me with all of both of your hearts, they interpreted this to mean that we are to love God with all of our desire for good and all of our desire for evil. Now, that's, that doesn't help, right? That's weirder. Because you would think that God would say, hey, just be good, don't be evil. Love me with all of your desire for good and don't have desires for evil. But that's not, that's not what this verse, that's not what this all of both of your hearts means. That's not how they interpret it. And if we're going to get a handle on what God means by love me with all of both of your hearts, then we have to get even nerdier. Okay, so here we go. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, if you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 3. It's right up there at the front. Uh, Genesis chapter 2. This is one of the creation stories in the Bible. And uh, creation stories teach us how we are related to God and how we are related to each other and how we are related to the world, okay? So as we read through this chapter, keep that in mind. What this is trying to tell us is about who we are and what it means to be human. You'll see what I mean. Let's begin in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a uh, garden in Eden to the east, and there he placed the man he had made. And the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. And in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so a couple things to take note of here. First of all is how Genesis describes the nature of humanity. Okay? Uh, God is described here as sort of a potter, and he, he's like scooping dirt out of the ground and, and making us sort of out of like clay or out of mud. 
And then once we have been formed, he breathes into us the spirit of life, or the, bre- uh, the breath of life is what it says in our text, but the Hebrew word for breath can also mean spirit. It's the same word. So, humans are dust, we are earth, we are matter, and we are spirit. We are God's own spirit breathed into us to make us alive, okay? The other thing to note is that we have these two trees in the middle of this garden where we live. We have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? This, this good and evil framework that begins clear back at the beginning of the Bible is what the rabbis are talking about with our desire for good and our desire for evil. So we're going we're gonna to come back to those in a minute because that's where we really need to camp out if we're going to get to the, the bottom of this loving God with all of both of our hearts. But first, we need to push a little bit more on what it means to be human. So skip down to verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. Okay? Uh, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to watch over it. And the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely of the, tr- uh, the fruit of every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. If you eat from it, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, okay, it's not good for the man to be alone. So I'll make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all of the wild animals and all of the birds of the sky. I want to read that again because there's an important word. The, wor- the Lord God formed from the ground all of the wild animals, and all of the birds of the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all of the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals, but there was still no helper just right for him. Okay, now this, this story is going to result in the creation of the woman. Okay? But the important part for us today is how the animals were made. The animals were made from the ground, just like we were. It's the same process. God scoops together some dirt and makes animals, just like he scooped together some dirt and made us. The difference for Genesis between a human and an animal is not that we're made of different stuff, which again, science tells us that today, right? We all have DNA. We're all, everyone's had biology 101, right? Like, you know, like we're we're the same, we are animals. We're in the animal kingdom on the big, um, you know, uh, what is that? The taxa, tech, whatever, that, you know, the thing, the biology thing. I'm not a scientist. Um, (laughs) There's a reason I did a thing, yeah, religion. Okay, so here we go. So, so yeah, Gen- uh, we know. We know that we're animals, right? And Genesis says, yeah, we are. We're made from the same stuff as the animals. The difference between humans and animals is that we have been breathed into by the Spirit of God. Okay? So, get this. In Genesis 2, God is spirit, and animals are dust, and we're both. We're a hybrid. We're between God and animals. We're in this special kind of like midway point between creation. That, that's pretty interesting, right? So, let's go back to those trees. We have, uh, we have the, the knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is again kind of tripping us up, right? What is it? Because it, again, the way we hear it is that good and evil means right and wrong. And so it's, it's it always, you know, when I remember growing up and reading this story and thinking, well, okay, so basically if they didn't eat from this tree, they didn't know the difference between right and wrong, but then they get punished for eating from the tree, and that's not fair uh, for God to punish someone when they didn't know, like that, that you know, that it was, so, so it doesn't really, it doesn't really hang together. And again, the rabbis knew this, uh, philosophers for hundreds and thousands of years have, have looked at uh, the fact that it can't just be that good and evil is about right and wrong. And we know from the way the Bible talks about uh, good and evil that it's not. In fact, when you see in Hebrew uh, two opposites, that's a poetic way to say everything. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? It's not saying that God created this one specific thing and this other specific thing. 
It's a, we know when we read that, it means, no, God created everything, right? The heavens and the earth. And we do this in English, too, right? If you say to someone, I love you from your head to your toes, you're not saying, I love your head and I love your toes and everything else not wild about, right? No, like we understand that that's like kind of a fun, poetic way of saying everything, right? And it's the same thing here. When, when it's talking about the knowledge of good and evil, it's talking about this sort of like all knowledge, right? And the other important thing to see is that in Hebrew, evil has a much broader range of meaning than we have in English. Like when, when, when you're talking about evil in English, right, you're talking about like the worst of the worst, right? I mean, when you're ranking good and bad people or things or whatever, evil is like as bad as it gets, okay? In Hebrew, it's a much broader thing. If you, if you, if you take this word in Hebrew and go all the, all the different places it's used in scripture, you see that it is used of like really bad stuff. But it's also used of stuff that we would not ever dream of calling evil. Uh, so imagine if you've, if you've ever known someone who uh, uses really crude humor all the time. Like it seems like every, they, they tell jokes a lot and every joke is dirty and it kind of leaves you feeling like, you know, or someone who just has like a, a, like a really foul mouth. We wouldn't call that person evil. I mean, they're not Hitler, right? Just you told a dirty joke. But it's still, it's like, it's, it's low, like it's base, like it's, it's not great, right? And, and, and the Hebrew word evil can also encompass that as well, okay? So when we, he, when we see this word evil here, it's, and th- this is really more of the sense it has. It's like, the, um, it's like the best, 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 and the worst, 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 and kind of everything in between, and specifically it's this like crude or low humor. And I want you to think with me for a minute about how we talk about people who sort of give into their low urges or their animalistic urges, right? You might say someone eats like a pig. Or you might say they're a party animal, right? Or she's a cougar. (laughs) Or you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, right? Like we do this without without really thinking about it. When when people, when we see someone who's giving into their, their base urges or instincts, we describe them as animals. We recognize that in some way they're, they're somehow less than human. Not, not because they started that way, but be specifically because of how they're acting. They're, they're giving into this sort of animal instinct. So good and evil here isn't so much about right and wrong. It's more about spiritual and animalistic, which again is exactly where we are. We're both in Genesis 2. That's the framework Genesis set up for us. We're spirit and flesh. And this idea of good and evil is really pointing us in that direction. Spiritual things and fleshly things. Now, if you, if you follow me with that framework, we're going to now watch how it all falls apart in Genesis chapter 3. Okay? So here's the first verse. The serpent was the shrewdest of all of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Uh, we translate this word shrewd or sometimes it's crafty. It has like a real negative connotation because we know the snake turns out to be the bad guy. But again, this word that's used here is actually, it just kind of means smart. The serpent was the smartest of all of the animals that God has made. Now, we know that's not true. We know it's border collies, right? But um, in this particular case, uh, in this particular case, it's saying that the serpent was like the, the smartest animal. It was the most animal animal. It, ha- it had the best animal knowledge. We call animal knowledge instinct, right? Animals live on instinct. They operate according to desire. That's what animal knowledge is. And it's saying that the serpent like sort of embodied that. It was like the most the most animal of all of the animals. It had the best instincts of all of the animals. And as we read, what it 
talks about with the woman, I want you to notice that what it's going to do is it's going to appeal to her animal urges. It's going to appeal to her desires. Okay, let's go ahead and finish this part of the story. One day the serpent asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat of it or even touch it, or if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent said. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. Here it is. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and that she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. The serpent promised that she would be like God. The trick is she already is like God, right? Remember, she's spirit as much as she's flesh. The Spirit says, hey, if you do this, you'll be like God. And she looks at it, and she wants it. She begins to crave it. She begins to desire it, and so she takes it. In this moment, she lives like an animal instead of living in the Spirit. She gives into that craving that she has inside of her, despite the fact that she knows it's wrong. Despite the fact that God said, don't touch that, or you'll die. Despite all of that, she, she gave into her cravings, and that's what got us in trouble. This desire is at the core of the first sin. And so let's talk about desire. Let's talk about our, our, our animal desires and our, and our spiritual desires, because we have both, right? We have animal desires. We want food, we want security. We want sex. We want things of our flesh, like our flesh craves these things. We also have spiritual desires. We, we crave things like beauty and truth and love. We crave all of these things. We have both of them. And here's the thing, again, like I said at the beginning, all of these desires are good. God created them in us. You get into these places where people say fleshly desires are bad and spiritual desires are good or things like that, but that's not true. God created them all. And they're all good, but they are all tainted by sin. They can all lead us towards evil. Uh, one of our, one of, one of our uh, church fathers, a man named Augustine of Hippo, he lived in northern Africa, uh, he, he defined evil for us, and he said, here's the thing to think about with evil. God created everything, which means everything is good. Evil doesn't exist on its own. There's not like a ball of evil out there floating around, going around doing bad things. Right? Evil Things that are evil are evil because they are perversions of something good. There's something good that God made that's been twisted, that's been distorted away from what it was created to be. That's what, that's what is evil. It's when things are disordered. They're out of the way that God shaped and created and placed. That's what makes something evil. So our, our desires, our desires are evil, not when they exist, but when they are distorted when they point us away from God and from life. So the question we have to ask is how do we know what desires are good and what desires are bad? Sometimes, sometimes it's obvious, right? Desires for food that turn into gluttony is bad, but what, what's the line there? And what's the difference between feasting and celebrating and being a glutton? Our desire for, for sex is good, but obviously when it turns into sexual violence, that's bad. Casual hookups, not a great idea. But sometimes the line can be difficult to discern when you're using someone or truly engaging with them. 
Even our spiritual desires are this way. Our desire for truth is a good thing. But how easily does it become warped into judgmentalism? Which is bad. Our desire for love is obviously good. Obviously good. But it can so easily turn into a craving for approval. A need to be affirmed. That's bad. And the problem is there's not a rule book for this. I mean, it looks different all across the board. It's so hard to discern when our desires are good and when they're bad, unless, you know, they've turned into full bloom and it becomes super obvious, right? But for those of us who are really wanting to take seriously, how do we, dis- how do we discern, how do we make good decisions, how do we be holy? It can be difficult, and this is where the spirit comes in, because as Genesis 2 reminds us, we are not only flesh. We are flesh and spirit. A fully human life is one that is being breathed into constantly by the spirit of God. The Spirit is the one who works in us to help us to begin to discern the root of our desires. Is our love good or is it craving approval? Is our, is our craving for food good or are we seeking it for comfort or because we're stressed? Is our anger good? Is it something that's aimed at injustice or is it covering up some kind of a hurt or an insecurity? Those are difficult questions and the Spirit is the one who enables us to begin to discern the root of our desire because when we can get to the root of what we want, then we can begin to learn how God intended those desires to be satisfied. We can order them properly. We can put them where they belong in our lives and when our desires are ordered well, that is when they lead to life. We begin to grow in wisdom. Now, Every week of this series, we're going to be focusing on a different spiritual practice that helps us utilize these different lenses. And so for this lens of our hearts discerning our, our fleshly and our spiritual desires, the spiritual practice that we're focusing on is fasting. Fasting is a way that we order our desires because when you fast, you say no to the thing that you want, whether that's food or, or whatever you're fasting from, right? You have, a, you have a craving, you have a desire, and you say no to it. And what you learn when you say no to your desire is that the world doesn't start and stop based on whether or not you're getting your craving satisfied, right? You learn that when you can, you, you can say no to a desire and you're fine. The way Jesus said it was, humans don't live on bread alone. We live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So when we say no to our craving and we focus instead on being open to the spirit, the spirit begins to help us to discern our different desires. Now, if you've never fasted before, uh, it can be tricky to know how to, to start and to do it well. So that's why we have these spiritual practice guides. You're going to be seeing them every week uh, because we have five different spiritual practices that we highlight in here. And this is purely designed to be a quick start guide if you've never done these. If you've never fasted, here you go. If you've never read scripture or if you've tried and you got lost in Leviticus and you're like, I don't know how people do this, like that's what this is for. If you really don't know how to pray and you think it's like talking to yourself in a room is weird, that's what this is for, right? All of the, all the different spiritual practices we have, that's what these are for is to help you kind of figure that out. So, my friends, as we're closing out today, no one can do this for you. No one can make you take serious stock of what's going on inside of you. No one can measure for you if your relationships are holy or if they're toxic. No one can do that for you. And the time to do serious self-examination is when things are good. Okay? You don't want to wait for your marriage to blow up to say, hey, you know what? Maybe I want to work on my marriage. <coughs> you don't want to wait until you're in a soul-crushing position and you can't imagine to going into work one more day to say, hey, I, I want to make sure that I'm really in the best place for me 
You don't want to wait until a relationship is draining the life out of you before you figure out healthy relationships. And so we're giving you these lenses for the next five weeks, but you have to decide whether you're going to use them, whether you're going to take seriously this opportunity to examine yourself, to look for the seeds of sin within you, and to pluck them out. The good news is that we don't do this alone. The Spirit of God is breathing life into us, making us new, and will give us eyes to see if we are willing to do this. And so I want to challenge all of us for the next five weeks to come on this journey together, to be a people who wants to not just be good enough, but to be whole, to not settle for fine, but to look for flourishing. Because this is who God has called us to be. And if we are willing to be honest with ourselves, if we're willing to do this difficult work, then we can be that people. We can have beautiful, flourishing relationships, beautiful, flourishing lives. We can love God with all of both of our hearts. Our spiritual desires and our fleshly desires, all of them can be oriented towards the God who gave them to us in the first place and who gave them to us specifically so that we could experience a fully human, flourishing life. Now, we're going to begin today by approaching the communion table. This is a meal that Jesus shared with his followers the night before he was killed. When he invited us to receive bread as his body broken for us. Wine as his blood poured out as a new covenant, a new relationship between us and God. And so we approach the table today as a people who have all kinds of desires swirling within us. A people who need God's help to discern the right path for these desires. You don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion with us today. If you are willing, if you are willing to trust God and learn to love God with all of both of your hearts, then you're welcome to come forward. Before we approach the table, I'm going to ask you four questions that will lead you to think back on the week before and the week ahead and specifically invite you to respond to this message today. And then as, uh, after that, I'll close us in prayer. And as you're ready, you're welcome to come forward. So think about the week that brought you here. When in the last week did your desires connect you closer to God? When in the last week did you indulge desires that drew you away from God? Think about the week that's ahead of you. When in the next week will you be tempted to indulge a desire that uh, draws you away from God?
And finally, how can you breathe deeply of the Spirit this week? Is that by trying to fast? Is it a a daily prayer of examine like we're doing right now? How can you breathe deeply of the Spirit this week? Let's pray together. God, uh, this is a difficult message today because we are so used to separating the world into spiritual things and unspiritual things. Uh, But you have shown us today that you command us to love you with all of both of our hearts, with every desire we have that is spiritual and every desire that we have that is fleshly. We need new minds that can understand this wisdom. So we ask you today to teach us through your Holy Spirit what it means to love you with our whole selves. We ask you to teach us what it means to have good, holy desires that are rightly ordered, that are leading us to the life that you created us for. We want to be a holy people who shows the world what your love looks like. That every relationship is pure, every vocation is good, every desire that we have is is exactly as you created it to be. As we approach your table this morning, do a work in us. May these wafers and juice become a spiritual food that enables us to breathe deeply of your spirit, to to receive your life, to have the courage to look within ourselves for those seeds of sin. We trust that your spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that breathes life into us will give us eyes to see. And so we approach your table this morning and we offer these prayers in the name of your son, Jesus.